Good afternoon. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the elders of this church. It's a joy to be with you. Hannah and I, my wife, our parents both work in real estate right now. And when you sell a house, you need an appraisal. An appraisal is the unbiased assessment of the true worth of your home. A highly trained professional comes into your home. You might be curious as to what they're looking for. They don't look at the decorations or the furniture. They don't look if you've made your bed or not. Some of you would be thankful for that. They don't look at the pictures on the walls. They want to know how many bedrooms and bathrooms you have. They calculate how many square meters the home is. They look for cracks in the walls, water stains, pests, stinky smells. What if you did an appraisal of a local church? What should you consider in your assessment? You definitely need to look at the church's doctrine. Perhaps you look up their statement of faith. Is it clear about who God is, that there's one God? Does it teach the final authority of the scriptures? Does it explain that sin is our greatest problem and that salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? These would be good places to start. But it would be a mistake to stop there. You'd also need to assess the church's culture. Is the church warm and welcoming? How do they treat one another? Are there factions and divisions in the church? Are the relationships deep or are they shallow? Does the church pray for one another? Is it a church where you can be honest about your sin? Do Christians in the church actually confess their sin to one another? Does the church care for one another? Does the church pursue one another? Both doctrine and culture are vital in the local church. As Ray Ortland says, a church can unsay by its culture what it says in its doctrine. Friends, we need to think deeply about the culture of our church. And James is here to guide us. Today we finish the book of James reflecting on life in the local church. If you have your Bibles... Please turn to James chapter 5. It's near the end of the New Testament. If you're following along in the bulletin, it's on page 8. James is a difficult book to find structure or a theme in. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it seemed that James just took a few sayings of the disciples and of Jesus and he threw them down on paper and that was his letter. But I think if we took all of James' commands, there's over 50 of them, in just 108 verses, I think we'd see this underlying idea, kind of a main idea of the book of James. The book is a call to be undivided, spiritually whole. That's what James cares about. In our last eight verses, James applies this idea of spiritual wholeness to the local church. Listen as I read James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith 
will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, we lift up our eyes to you, asking with faith that you would once again teach us from your holy word. Work in our hearts to bring us back to the truth. Give us power by the Holy Spirit, and wisdom to apply this word to our lives, that we may be whole and undivided in our devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The main idea of this sermon is, uh, it's two parts really. Individually, we need to share suffering and sin. Corporately, so as a church, we need to pray and pursue one another. So two parts. Individually, share our suffering and sin. Corporately, we need to pray and pursue one another. In verses 13 through 18, we first see there's a culture in the church James wants to highlight. It's a culture of prayer and confession. Like a doctor, James begins with three diagnostic questions to assess the culture of the church. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Now, as we've seen in the past, the Christians James wrote to were suffering. They experienced various trials, whether poverty or persecution or oppression from their employers. What's James' counsel to them? What does he say? James says, let him pray. Perhaps it was a call to pray for wisdom, to count suffering as joy, like we saw back in chapter 1. James actually doesn't tell us the content of the prayer. Instead, he gives us a command for prayer. Maybe you're thinking, what should I pray then? Jesus modeled this for us on the night before he was crucified. He took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. The day before Jesus endured the greatest suffering, the wrath of God for sinners like us. He grabbed his closest friends and he prayed. They didn't pray, they slept. But Jesus prayed. Wouldn't you love to know the content of Jesus' prayer? Friends, you don't have to guess. He prayed, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friend, if you're in suffering right now, where do you turn to in your pain? There's a heavenly Father who hears you. Follow Jesus' footsteps. Pray to him in your suffering. 
pray Jesus' prayer in your suffering. The church is filled with sufferers. So there is a sense in which our gatherings are marked by a seriousness. There's a sobriety among us. But not all of us are currently suffering. Look back at verse 13. James asks, is anyone cheerful? It's the exact opposite. Christians must be the most cheerful people on the planet, for we are people of good news. Like every sunbeam traces back to the sun. James told us earlier, every good and perfect gift is from God above. Cheerful Christian, how should you respond? James says, sing praise. You are to praise God with your lips and through a song. C.S. Lewis said, a delight is incomplete unless it's expressed. And singing is one joyous way that we express our delight in God. If you're cheerful this afternoon, sing. Turn your joy to song. Turn your good circumstances into gratefulness to God. And think about this. James addresses both those who are sorrowful and those rejoicing. They're both in the church. Both are called to go to God, one through prayer, one through singing. What do we learn? We learn that whether the sun is shining or dark clouds loom, James encourages us to go to God in whatever season we face. But in verse 14, James asks of a third person in the church. Look at verse 14. This is the situation that he spends the majority of this text addressing. Is anyone among you sick? What should the sick do? Look at verse 14. He says, let him call. Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The sick aren't actually told to pray themselves. It's interesting. I don't think he's telling them not to pray, but he does want someone particular to pray for them also. It's a call to the elders for prayer. And notice their need to call the elders to themselves suggests that maybe they're not able to go to the gathering of the church where they would normally see the elders. This also helps us understand a little bit of the severity of the sickness James is addressing. Not common allergies, not the common cold. This sickness is severe. Now you've probably read this passage before if you're a Christian. And maybe you've thought, okay, but what about the oil? What does it mean to anoint him with oil? Should we do that today? These are good questions. But notice where James' focus lies. In verses 13 through 18, you'll see prayer repeated seven times. Oil only mentioned one time. The anointing of oil is even supplementary to the prayer in verse 14. So while we will consider the oil, we must concentrate on the prayer. James tells us who to pray for, or who should pray, the elders, elders of the church. The Bible uses the terms elders, pastors, overseers, interchangeably in the New Testament. They're all the same office. And Paul instructs churches to have elders. He even gives qualifications for elders in the church. A summary of them are that the elders are to be godly. They're examples to the church of spiritual maturity. One pastor even put it this way, an elder's life is show and tell to the congregation. 
and an elder's ministry in the church can really be summed up by two things. The word and prayer. Elders must teach the word and pray for the flock. If you're a Christian, yet not a member of a local church, I wonder, who are your elders? Who are the men God's placed over you to shepherd you, to care for your soul? Every Christian needs a church. Every church needs elders. God's blessed Covenant Hope Church with six men who have been given by Jesus Christ, set apart by the Holy Spirit, chosen by the church to serve as elders. Brian Parks, Frank Sampson, Mark Donald, Shannon Phillip, Nissan Matthew, myself. These are men to look to as examples of righteousness. They're men that you should call on on the day of sickness. So friend, if you're sick, maybe you get to a point in life where you're unable to come to the church even. Please initiate with the elders. Share your suffering and your sickness with us. This takes much humility. It's hard to admit weakness. So let me say this to you on behalf of all the elders. We love you, and we're not just glad to come to you. We're eager to pray for you. James tells us how to pray in verse 14. He says, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's three primary views of what the oil exactly is. One is that it's medicinal. The other is that it's sacramental. The last view is that it's symbolic. The medicinal view argues that oil in the first century was used for its medicinal value. People would turn to Luke 10, 34, where the good Samaritan binds up the wounds of a man who's been beaten and left for dead, and he pours on the man oil and wine. But in this text, it doesn't say he anoints him, just that he pours. The sacramental view is the view held by the Roman Catholic Church, and this is where a priest prepares someone for death. They remove any remnant of sin, or so they claim. The last view, the symbolic view, says that the oil symbolizes consecration or whole devotion to God. This was a practice seen throughout the Old Testament, especially with the anointing of priests and kings. You go to Numbers 3 or 1 Samuel 10 to see that. Now, I'm certain the oil in this uh, passage is not the sacramental view. The oil does not have any supernatural power. James never says that. The oil is even secondary to the prayer of the elders. They're praying in the name of the Lord. And this passage, notice, isn't about the preparation of death. It's a prayer for healing. The opposite. I also don't think that the oil here is medicinal either. Because James tells them to call the elders, not the doctors. And it seems that this sick person is in need of more than the common grace of medicine, this person needs supernatural healing. So the symbolic view makes the most sense, especially with the numerous texts in the Old Testament where anointing with oil symbolizes being set apart for God. The prayer is an expression of dependence on God with words. The oil is a visible symbol of that reality. In verse 15, James turns back to prayer once again. Look there. He says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice here there's three results of this prayer. 
salvation of the sick, resurrection from the Lord, and the forgiveness of sins. So we have to ask the question, is James teaching that those anointed with oil by elders will be healed without exception as long as they have faith? That's exactly what some prosperity preachers teach. They hold healing crusades. They invite the sick to give and pray and be healed. But when the healing doesn't come, who's to blame? They blame it on the sick person. They say you don't have enough faith to pray upon the sick and vulnerable. Then blame them for their condition is spiritual abuse. James is not teaching that. First, the prayer of faith notice is made by the elders. So even if he was teaching that, really it would be the elders' fault if somebody didn't get sick, didn't get healed. Second, the prayer of faith is seen in James 1.6. If we go back there, we'll see. He talks about asking in faith with no doubting. This means it's a prayer convinced of God's promises, yet a prayer trusting in God's purposes. It's also a prayer that God sometimes uses in his providence for healing. Notice the one who is sick is saved, James says. He's talking about salvation from severe sickness. Christians don't need the prayers of their elders for their salvation from sin, but from sickness. James says the Lord will raise him up. Again, James is using that language in the New Testament surrounded by the healing stories where a sick person is raised up and out of bed. Lastly, James does deal with the spiritual side of the sickness in that last part of verse 15. It's there, he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we see here some physical illnesses are, not, are actually the result of sin. Think about Jesus. He healed that man, and then he told him, go and sin no more. Or think about the Apostle Paul, warning the Corinthian church not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He said, some of you are even sick. Some have died because you guys are doing this. Not all sin is connected to sickness. Not all sickness is connected to sin. But if sins have been committed that led to this sickness, James encourages the sick and the elders to deal with it. God promises healing here. So does God promise that all his saints will always be healed? This is difficult. We know, though, that the man who wrote this letter eventually died. We have examples in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul. He had many friends who were sick. Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed the Lord would take it away three times, yet it remained. We're so often misled by convictions of what we think God will do. But God is not a genie, nor a cosmic vending machine. Sometimes we have a stubborn insistence that our will be done. We're sure of it. James is instead calling us to bring faith-filled prayers to God, boldly asking, without doubting, but humbly trusting in God's sovereign plan. God's plan may be to use your pastor's prayer for healing. We don't know for certain, but we do know that on the last day, 
God's people will get salvation and resurrection with Jesus Christ. So what should our takeaway be from these verses on healing? Well, James tells us in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James is calling for a culture in the church of confession and prayer. And notice the shift here from the elders in the church to the whole church. The church is the place where the suffering pray, the cheerful sing, the sick are prayed for. And because of this, it's a place that should be marked by honesty and vulnerability, transparency and intercession for one another. So Covenant Hope Church, are we marked by these characteristics? Especially confession of sin. I mean, think about that. No culture naturally confesses their sin to one another. All the way back, if you think to the Garden of Eden, you and I share the same culture where Adam and Eve hid from God and attempted to clothe their shame with fig leaves. Each one of us in our flesh is trying to present to others a well-kept and presentable life. But as we consider the gospel, each of us is robbed of all our self-righteousness and our pretense. Before Christ, we tried to nail dead fruit to the tree of our lives. It stunk. We didn't fool anyone. We were dead to the core, continuing in decay. But when Jesus died on the cross in our place, God planted new fruit deep in our heart all the way down to the root. We are his new creation, the Bible says. He changed us from the inside out. He continues to do so by the Holy Spirit. All this means, Christian, that you can be honest about your sin because Jesus has already outed the worst of the worst of the worst sin that you've ever committed on the cross and he canceled it. This is the grace of the gospel. Paul reflects on this. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Do you believe this? Then when's the last time you confessed your sin? Friends, what's keeping you from confessing your sin? Your greatest nightmare might be humiliation, rejection that you'll face if you confess your sin. But friend, your guilt has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. The shame of your sin has been covered in Jesus Christ. So why? Why do you search for fig leaves that can't even clothe you when you've been clothed in righteousness? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. He died for you while you were still a sinner. He set you free from the slavery to sin. You are free indeed. You're made a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. God himself knows the real you, not the you that you present to, your, to others, not the Instagram you, the real you. And he loves you. He loves you in Jesus Christ. So confess your sins to one another. Husbands, 
This is one way that God's called us to lead our families. Share your sin with your spouse. Maybe you can start with this one. I need to confess that I've not led us well in confessing our sins. But by God's help, I want to start. Elders in the church, brothers. This is one way God's called us to lead the church. And I confess, I've not done a great job at this. This is difficult. We're the ones that are establishing our church's culture. Members must look to us as examples, not of perfection, but of repentance and confession. Friends, if you're a member of the church, I want you to think about your closest relationship in this church. Do you regularly confess your sin to one another? Start today. And friend, you may be wrestling now with that unconfessed sin. Thinking, there's no way I could ever tell anyone that. You're hiding in the darkness. It's lonely. It's miserable there. It's exhausting. Jesus is calling you today to walk in the light. To experience the real warmth of relationships where you're known and yet still loved because of Jesus. Covenant Hope Church is not a safe place for sin. But it's a safe place for sinners like you and me to be honest and seek the change, that deep change that Christ purchased on the cross. A culture of confession in the local church, it's countercultural, it's cross-cultural, it's supernatural. Let's pray for this in our church. James also calls for a culture of prayer. He says, pray for one another. Suffering Christians are called to pray. Elders are called to pray. The whole church is called to pray for one another. Now our elders do this as they lead us in the pastoral prayer. Brian just did this moments ago. Bring our church's requests before God. If you don't know how to pray, listen to these prayers closely. Pray for members in the church. Pray for other churches. Pray for government officials. Pray for world events. Pray for unreached people groups. Pray for one another. I see this happen at Covenant Hope Church after the service. It's beautiful, really. They have to kick us out of this room. Sometimes I even see members praying for one another before they leave. We host a prayer meeting after the Monday night Bible study every week. I invite you to join that. Some members even commit every day. They pray through a whole page of the membership directory. Our elders commit a meeting every month just to praying for members in the church. It's God's grace that there's a culture of prayer in this church. Let's keep praying that it continues. Last week, if you remember, gave, James gave us an example of patience. He said, look at a farmer. He gave us an example of perseverance. He said, look at the prophets. Today, we get an example of of the power of prayer in the prophet Elijah. Look at verse 16 again. James says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you've never read this story, you can read about the story of Elijah, 1 Kings 17 and 18. But James gives us the highlights. James tells us about Elijah. What's important that we need to know? 
Not that he was a prophet, which is interesting. He says, Elijah was an ordinary man, just like you. He wasn't superhuman. And yet, look what happened when he prayed. He prayed fervently. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And what happened? It did not rain for three and a half years. Three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and it rained. The Bible is filled with stories like this of faithful men and women who turn to God and pray for the impossible. And God answers their prayers. They're stories that teach us and convict us to pray more because God hears and he answers. And look at the result of both the culture of prayer and confession in verse 16. Both are for our healing. God cares about our souls. He cares about our bodies too. Jesus healed the sick and he forgave sinners. So we pray for our bodies to be healed. And we also pray for, confess our sins to one another. Now we've spent the most of this sermon, the bulk of it, in verses 13 through 18. We've considered a culture of prayer, a culture of confession. James ends this letter, the last two verses, with a corporate reflection on wholeness. In verses 19 and 20, we see a culture of pursuit and a culture of restoration. Once again, if you look at verse 19, James looks around the local church. This time, he notices that someone's missing. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Some in the church were wandering from the truth. They were double-minded. Maybe they wanted friendship with the world and friendship with God. And where there are wanderers, James says there must be rescuers. Someone needs to bring them back. Friend, if you're a Christian yet you're not a member of a local church, do you see the centrality of the local church in James? You need elders. You need prayer. You need a group of Christians who are committed to bring you back if you wander. You need a church. And the church needs you. The church needs your prayers. The church needs your pursuit. The church needs your accountability. Friend, if that's you, let me encourage you. We have a membership class next month. You should consider signing up. You don't need to be a member of this church, but you need to join. You need to submit to a church somewhere. Members of Covenant Hope Church, James is calling us together to spiritual wholeness. That means being deeply concerned that others in the church aren't wandering but are walking in the wisdom from above. Earlier he said each of us are called to confess our sins. Here he's saying each of us are called to rescue others when they're caught in sin. In Genesis 4, Cain asked God, he said, am I, am I my brother's keeper? Now, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, what did he do? He purchased not just individuals, but a people, a family. And notice, James again does not address the elders here. They're not the ones only who are to be doing this. 
He's talking to the whole church. If you've been a Christian long enough, you know friends who have turned their back on the Lord. I have many friends who have quit following Jesus. Even many more who say they're Christians, but their lives fit the picture of James chapter 2. They say they have faith, but there's no works. And sadly, many churches do not have a culture of pursuit and restoration. Can you imagine if they did? What if churches took this seriously? They left the 99 and ran after that one straying sheep. Isn't this the story of the entire Bible? We wandered from truth in the garden. We left God and God did everything he could to bring us back. And one day soon we will no longer be able to stray again. Isn't this what Jesus did on the cross? Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. How far would God go to bring back his wandering bride? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus died for straying sheep to be brought back into the fold. This is the grace that fuels our mission as we seek to rescue lost sheep. In verse 20, we might expect to find James' last command then of the letter to be, go, go find those lost sheep. Instead of a command to do something, though, James gives us a command to know something. Know the result of bringing back a sinner. While a sick person may be healed in their body, and James cares about that, even more he cares that a sinner is saved from death. When a wandering sinner repents and is brought back, we're to welcome them with open arms. Think of the prodigal son. He returns and there's a celebration. He's given a hug. His dad says, I'm glad you're home. That should be the culture in the church, friends. Excuse me. <clears throat> the church needs a culture of pursuit. Also one of restoration. One of celebration when sinners are brought home. And see the participation, friend, you have in this. God purchased the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. And yet it's in the church. He uses ordinary Christians like us. To keep his saints. If you're someone who struggles with this, maybe you're struggling right now, you're wandering. Friend, you can come home. We love you. If you're someone who struggles to confront others, maybe you struggle to rebuke others, what does James want you to think about? He wants you to think about that eternal death. That sin, when it's fully grown, brings. He wants you to think about saving them from that. That's your motivation as you correct and exhort and rebuke one another. I think of my daughter. If she was running into the street, into oncoming traffic, wouldn't I do everything in my power to bring her back, to bring her home? Friend, if you're not a Christian... You are so welcome at this gathering. Each week we care about you. We love you. 
Even before the service, we were praying for you. We were praying for your salvation. You, my friend, are in need of your soul saved from death and your sins covered. That's available today in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in Jesus in his finished work on the cross. As we close, the church needs a culture of prayer, confession, pursuit, and restoration. James has given us our checklist to do our own church appraisal. Do the suffering pray? Do the cheerful sing? Do the elders pray for healing? Is there a culture of prayer in the church? Do the Christians confess their sins to one another? Do they hide them? Do Christians lovingly pursue one another in sin? Are wandering Christians restored back to the community? And as we take James' appraisal, we of course need to start with ourselves. And we remember as we do that, that God himself, he is more committed to our spiritual wholeness than we are. He's faithful to make us look more like Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit to bring forth that new fruit of righteousness in our lives. Let's praise God for not only saving us, but for transforming us together.